Did you ever wonder what Bible school students think about the Bible and what their questions are about the Bible? I've always wanted to know that, and I get to hear them and speak with them all the time. And that's what we're going to talk about on today's special Thanksgiving weekend edition of Open Line. So stay with me. Hello, friends. Welcome to Open Line. My name is Michael Rydelnik. I'm professor of Jewish studies and Bible at Moody Bible Institute, and I'm so glad to be with you recorded today on this special Thanksgiving weekend edition of Open Line. Uh, Every week we gather here at the radio kitchen table to talk about your questions about the Bible, God, and the spiritual life. But today we're going to do something different. Please don't call. What we're going to do is we have students from Moody Bible Institute, and they are here, and we've pre-recorded this, and they are going to ask their questions about the Bible or God or the spiritual life. So they're going to be a little different than what I would say most people have when they ask questions about about the Scriptures, because students are thinking about these issues differently, and most of our listeners are not quite uh, the age of college students, and so because of their age, because of their experience, they're asking different questions. And so we're going to be with them in just a moment. So, But for now, what I'd like you to do is get yourself a cup of coffee, get out your Bible, and we're going to start our Bible study across America in just a moment. I want to talk about our current resource. It's a classic by Charles Ryrie. It's called Balancing the Christian Life. We, Jesus followers, always want to grow, hopefully. But I think we tend to get off balance. We emphasize one aspect of growth over another. And as a new follower of Jesus, this is the book that gave me a great foundation for spiritual growth. I still use it as a discipleship tool with new believers. And it's also helpful for wherever you're at in your growth as a follower of Jesus. I think it's a terrific book. I'm so glad it's still in print. And it's yours when you give a gift of any size to Open Line. We want to say thank you by sending you Balancing the Christian Life. Just call 888-644-7122 or go to openlineradio.org. And remember, ask for Balancing the Christian Life by Dr. Ryrie. And now what I'd like to do is turn this over to our students that are here. And what we're going to do is I'm going to ask them to introduce themselves, and they will tell us where they're from and what they're studying here at Moody, and then they get to ask their question. So we're going to start with you, Victoria. Hi, so my name is Victoria. I'm from Aurora, Illinois, and I'm studying elementary education at Moody. And my question is, What is the best method of Christian education according to the Bible, and is it more individualistic or community-oriented? Well, obviously you're an education major, and, you know, I've got—with children, in my opinion, uh, when I look at it, I mean, obviously people have been teaching children's classes for a long time. When the Lord Jesus studied, he uh, was—we know this in the New Testament era in Jewish— in the Jewish world, little children were put in groups in the synagogue. They were taught Hebrew because they spoke Aramaic. Uh, They learned to read and write so they could read the scriptures. Nevertheless, besides that group orientation, in Isaiah 50, it speaks about how the Lord Jesus became a disciple. Now, that's interesting. We always think of him as having disciples, But in Isaiah 50, here's what it says. Uh, This is the third 
servant song of the four servant songs in the book of Isaiah. And it says, the Lord has given me the tongue of one who is instructed, and it's the Hebrew word for discipled, uh, to know how to sustain the weary with a word. So he was taught how to speak. And then it says, he awakens me each morning. He awakens my ear to listen like one being instructed, one being discipled. And so the idea there was that I think from the very earliest age, as soon as there was any cognition, you know, and he wasn't just an infant, from the very earliest age, the father would wake the son and instruct him in the truth. And that's when people say, how did Jesus know who he was? That's how he knew. Uh, And so it was a very personal communication between the father and the son. Isn't that interesting? So that's a really important answer. So yes, they're group education, but parental education, so to speak. <laughs> and then I was thinking about Timothy in uh, 2 Timothy. First of all, it says in 2 Timothy 1.5 uh, that Paul says, I clearly recall your sincere faith that first lived in your grandmother Lois, then in your mother Eunice, and that I'm convinced is in you also. So from grandma to mom to son, a faith was transmitted. It doesn't say how in this verse, but it does say that it was transmitted. And then in 2 Timothy 3, verse 15, Paul writes to Timothy, you know that from childhood you have known the sacred scriptures which are able to give you wisdom for salvation through faith in the Messiah Jesus. Seems to me like that's the work of Lois and Eunice building into the life of, uh, of, the, uh, of the disciple, the son, Timothy. So again, it's familial. Uh, now, why, why do I think this is so important? The Jewish world, this is my upbringing, when you think of Passover, uh, of course, Jewish parents bring their kids to synagogue, they teach them at Hebrew school, all that stuff, just like the Lord Jesus experienced as a child. But it says in Exodus 13, your children will ask you when you celebrate the Passover uh, about what you're doing, and you're to explain it to them to the last detail. And that's what the Passover Seder is about, the order of the Passover, the service of the Passover that we do. We do it in our homes. We don't do it in the synagogue. And the reason we do that is because even though the synagogue had an important role to teach, the primary role for transmitting faith and values was considered to be the home. Mm -hmm. And so I think I would say that we have a partnership there. As long as parents would take the primary responsibility, then it can be supplemented and aided with a more traditional classroom. But from what I can look at in Exodus 13, Isaiah 50, and 2 Timothy I would say that there's a very, really important familial relationship to education. And it's one of the reasons with my kids when they were growing up, I felt I appreciated so much that they went to school and that they could learn things. You know, we had Shabbat school in our Messianic congregation, Sabbath morning school, uh, and they loved their teachers and learned tons from them. But the primary responsibility came from uh, my wife, Eva, and I to them. came from me and Eva. So, okay? Thank you. I'm just wondering, how does that uh, comport with or differ from what what you're learning? So because I'm going into Christian education, we're really 
um, exploring this idea of teaching children the Bible throughout everything, so all curriculum. Um, so I think for me, it's just a big part of education is, yes, it starts in the home um, because you want to raise your children in the instruction of the Lord. Um, but also I think there is that partnership like you were talking about where when the children are in that school environment, they're still being able to be raised in the Lord. Um, so, yeah. yeah. It's a, it is a partnership. Yeah. I, I was thinking about the book of Proverbs, how often it says, my son, listen to the words of instruction of your parents yeah. over and over. So there's parental responsibility. It doesn't mean that we can't have other kinds of education. By the way, I'll, I'll tell you my number one parental means of teaching. I, <laughs> I drove my kids crazy with this. Uh, I, I firmly believed in the schlepp-along approach to education. The Yiddish word schlepp is to drag. And I, I would drag my kids along with me everywhere, whatever I was doing. I was going to go speak someplace, uh, you know, I'd have a long drive. Come on with me. I would take one of my kids with me, and, and we would listen to CDs and do th back in the day, or tapes even, that long ago, uh, music. But that was when we would get to talk. And, of course, when you're just doing something, your kids will ask you, questions. And I also would say, I'm going to the hardware store and come on, come with me to the hardware store. And they're like, do, do we have to make a family outing to go to the hardware store? And I say, yeah, come on, come on. And I would take my kids with me or I'd take one of my kids with me. And it's interesting that when you're in that kind of setting, that's when your kids talk with you. If you sit down, mm -hmm. I mean, how many times you guys are young enough to remember your parents say, how was school today? What do you say? Fine. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. And uh, then you say, what'd you learn? Nothing. Right. You can ask all the questions you want and your kids won't answer, but you take them to the hardware store, you, you go for whatever you have to do. And that's when they say, you know, someone said something really strange at school yesterday and I was mm. wondering about it. Oh, what was that? And then you get to talk about mm. it. Yeah. Uh, and so uh, it's what I firmly believe is the Deuteronomy 6 approach. When you, when you get up, when you lie down, when you go out, when you come in, that's when uh, kids are taught the scriptures. Uh, it's it's the Deuteronomy 6 schlep along uh, method of education. At least that's mine. So anyway, yeah. uh, thanks. Uh, thanks for that question. And we are going to talk next to... Uh, hi, my name is Ashley. I'm from Rolling Meadows. Wait, Illinois. wait, Ashley. I'm going to tell you to wait. Do you know why? because I just heard that we're up to, against a break. So we're going to take a break here, and then we're going to start again with you. You're listening to a special Thanksgiving weekend edition of Open Line with my favorite questioners I've ever had, Moody students. And so stick with us. We're going to have more questions in just a moment. You're listening to Open Line on Moody Radio with Michael Rydelnik and several Moody students. Stay right there. We're coming right back at you. We're back. My name is Michael Rydelnik, and the program you're listening to is called Open Line. Normally, you'd call in, but today, please don't. It's Thanksgiving weekend, a special Thanksgiving weekend edition of Open Line. So we're pre-recorded, and it's really special because we've got Moody students here to ask their Bible questions. And so you hang on. We're going to get back to that in a moment. But before we do that, it's Thanksgiving weekend, and who am I thankful for? 
I'm thankful for so many good gifts that God has given me, but I'm especially thankful for OpenLine's kitchen table partners for all they do to keep us on the air. OpenLine's kitchen table partners give monthly so we can be on weekly. I'm so grateful for all that they, their generosity and their, their partnership with us in this ministry. And if you would like to become a kitchen table partner, I'd like to invite you to consider doing that. It, it means so much to us, and it helps keep us on the air teaching the Bible, helping people take their next step in their walk with the Lord. If you become a Kitchen Table Partner, one of the things that I really enjoy getting to do is sending you an exclusive Bible study, an audio Bible study prepared just for our Kitchen Table Partners. You get it in, the e- in your email every other week, you get to click on it, and it's about a five-minute Bible study that will really be an encouragement to you. Uh, as you give your monthly gift, you'll get to be a Kitchen Table Partner and also get that exclusive Bible study moment from me. Now, How to become a Kitchen Table Partner? Just go online to openlineradio.org. You can arrange it there, or you can call 888-644-7122. And thank you so much for thinking about that. Well, uh, what we're going to do now, by the way, if if you're listening, you think, I'd like to ask a question, but they're not taking questions today. Just go to our website, openlineradio.org. You can click on the link that says, Ask Michael a Question. Fill out the form there. And Trisha, our producer, will put it in the mailbag. And when we're back next week, uh, we'll be able to talk about the questions you've sent in. Now we're going to go back to our student here who is going to ask a question. Tell us your name and where you're from. Go ahead. Uh, Yeah, hi. My name is Ashley. I'm from Rolling Meadows, Illinois. Um, I'm a children and family ministry major here at Moody. Uh, My question for you is, what are some of the major differences between how the Jewish believers uh, see God and how a Baptist Christian can see God, or just a, a New or Testament, just yeah, just yeah. like a New Testament uh, Christian. Yeah. yeah, that's great. Uh, you know, I, I really think that we should see God exactly the same way. To be truthful, the problem is that I feel that most New Testament Christians are so New Testament oriented that they lose the whole context of the Bible. See, Jesus didn't appear out of nowhere. He came as the fulfillment of the Old Testament scriptures. And so I know that most students that I ask, uh, if I ask them uh, here at Moody, how, how is it that Jesus did, Jesus, did Jesus fulfill Messianic prophecy? They would say, yes. And then I'd say, which ones? And then there'd be a lot of humana, 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 I'm not sure what the answer is. So they don't have a context of what the Hebrew Bible foretold. A second thing that I would say is that uh, there's the sense of God being the father of Israel. In um, Exodus 4, God calls Israel his firstborn, which just means beloved, his beloved. And throughout Scripture, God expresses his love for Israel. And when I, when I think about this, uh, this is such a crucial thing. God says, can a mother forget her nursing child? She may forget, but I won't. Uh, he talks about how he nurtured Israel in the wilderness. There's a, this consistent message of God's special love for Israel. Jeremiah 31.3, I have loved you, he says to Israel, with an everlasting love. Even when Israel suffers, he says in Isaiah 40, speak tenderly to Jerusalem. She suffered double for all her sins. 
God has this great love and compassion for Israel. And what I find is that people who don't have that background, they come and they say, well, God loves me, and they forget that God has this special love for Israel. And even when they read the New Testament, they kind of glance over Romans 11, 28, and 29, where it talks about that even as Israel is opposed to the gospel, and they need to put their trust in Jesus to be saved, even in light of that, they remain chosen and beloved of the Father. Uh, and so I think that's one of the differences that many Jewish believers have. They have this sense that God loves their people, and that's why they want to proclaim the good news as the remnant of Israel uh, to the Jewish people. And I don't find that most people who come uh, to the Lord from a non-Jewish background, that, they, that that's such an important theme, which is a very important theme in Scripture, but it's not important to many of us. And so I would say that's another difference. Uh, I think Jewish believers, on the other hand, have a hard time, and they have to really, it's one of the, as I've discipled Jewish believers through the years, one of the things that's very important is to help them understand that Jesus is fully God, that that's what the scriptures teach, uh, and that uh, that God is triune. It's what my predecessor here at Moody, Lewis Goldberg, used to call the mystery nature of God, that this is one of the greatest mysteries. I can't explain it. Uh, in the book I wrote, 50 Most Important Bible Questions, one of the questions was, can you give a simple explanation of the Trinity? And my answer was, no, I don't think so. I wish I could. <laughs> there is no simple explanation, but we can look at a biblical explanation. The Bible teaches that God the Father is God, God the Son is God, God the Holy Spirit is God. And so uh, God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit, three in one. They're all, there's only one God. So that's, those are some special things that I find that uh, non-Jewish followers of Jesus have not as much a challenge with, but Jewish believers, I've got to really work hard to help them with that. So there are some differences. Have you noticed other differences that I'm not aware of? Um, not particularly. I'm friends with some of the people in uh, Jewish studies here at Moody, mm -hmm. so I just like hearing their perspective on um, like what some Jewish believers um, do think about God and just like people I knew in my past um, who were Messianic Jews and mm -hmm. along those lines. It's just small differences I've seen, It's but you know, like mm -hmm. you said, you covered pretty much everything yeah. that I asked. Thank I, you. I, I would just say that the, the most important thing I would say for Gentile Christians, since most people listening are not Jewish, if you're listening, the most important thing I can tell you is to read the Old Testament. This is, we don't have a, a canon within the canon, the New Testament being more inspired than the Old. God has given us his word. In 2 Timothy 3.16, it says that all scripture is inspired and profitable. That includes Leviticus. And uh, so often we neglect the Old Testament. It's a little bit more challenging, a little harder to understand. Uh, but, you know, I believe that making the holes of the scriptures accessible will change our understanding in the New Testament. And so that's why I worked so hard with all those Moody professors on the Moody Bible Commentary and why I've worked on other books like uh, the Moody Handbook of Messianic Prophecy to try and take the Old Testament and help people have a greater grasp of the whole book so that when they come to the New Testament, uh, a lot of, here's one of my favorite. I had a neighbor, not Jewish, mm -hmm. and she's not a believer. And she, uh, she said to Eva and me one day, maybe God brought you into my neighborhood here next door to me so I could find God. I thought, well, maybe, yeah. And then she said, 
let's, I'll read the Bible with you guys, but she said, I don't want to read the Old Testament. That's too scary. And I said, okay, we won't read the Old Testament. We'll start with the New Testament. And so uh, I got her an easy-to-read translation, and we sat down at our kitchen table. Hence, this is why we talk about being around the radio kitchen table, because I always like doing Bible study around a kitchen table. And uh, we sat down at our kitchen table. We got out our Bibles, and I said, okay, read the very first verse of the New Testament. And it said, this is the generation of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. And she said, wait, 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 wait. Who's this David? Who's this Abraham? Who are these people? And I said, well, you have to read the Old Testament to know who that is. And she said, I thought I didn't want to read that. I said, yeah, but to read the New Testament, you have to know the Old Testament. And that's why it's so important to have the whole of Scripture to get the meaning of of the New Testament even. So anyway... Thanks for that question. It was a great question, and I really appreciate it. We're going to go to another question right now. Hi, my name is uh, Chalker from Akron, Ohio, and I'm an intercultural studies major. And I was wondering, uh, in Isaiah 14.12, the author refers to Satan as the bright morning star. And the only other place that we see this is in uh, Revelation 22.16, where Jesus says that he is the bright morning star. So I was wondering, what does the bright morning star mean, and how is it a role that both Satan and Jesus could have held? Well, first of all, let me just say, to say that Satan wasn't a morning star and Jesus isn't a morning star. Uh, Satan is an angelic being, a cherub, uh, and so he's not not a star. And the Lord Jesus is God incarnate in the flesh. He's not a star. So we know that these are figures of speech. Uh, They are metaphors. And Secondly, when it calls him the morning star, it is saying that he shone brightly and had sort of a very high level of greatness. And so when it says that in Isaiah 14, that's all it's talking about. It says, shining morning star, how you have fallen from the heavens. He went from being super bright, which is what a morning star is, the first star you see, in the, mor- uh, the last star you see, it's so bright that, it, that in the morning, that star is still shining when the light starts coming up. That's how bright it is, because all the other stars go away. And so he's saying, you went from being so bright to so fallen, how shining morning star, how you have fallen from the heavens. But on the other hand, it's used in Revelation of, to call the Lord Jesus the morning star, because he is also so bright. It's a figure of speech for his glory, but it doesn't go away because he has not fallen. He has overcome. He's been victorious. So we can't say that just because a figure of speech is used uh, in a negative, well, it's not negative. It was how glorious you were and now you've fallen. So it means the same thing, but it it can be used of different people. It can be used of a morning star that fell and a morning star that was victorious. So that that help? Absolutely. Thank yeah, you. okay. Uh, now, one of the things I think in terms of interpretation of the Bible, one of the things that people want to do is they want to make every metaphor exactly the same and mean exactly the same thing. Not so. Uh, one of the things that you find in Scripture is the word leaven or yeast. 1 Corinthians 5, clean out the old leaven, the old sin. It's a negative. Uh, 
And in, I think it's Matthew 16, it says, beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and the Sadducees, right? Sin, the, the false teaching, the wrong teaching of the Pharisees and the Sadducees. Uh, so those are negative. And then the kingdom of heaven, Matthew 13, is like leaven. It's going to grow and grow and grow uh, as the message is proclaimed. So some people want to say, well, we've got to find a negative way that the kingdom of heaven is like sin. No. It's taking that metaphor of leaven and applying it in a different way because yeast grows and grows and grows. So does sin, by the way, which is why it's called the leaven of the Pharisees and the leaven of the Sadducees, clean out the old leaven. Sin just grows and grows and gets bigger and bigger like the baobab of trees and the little prince. On the other hand, uh, it, the kingdom of God, as it's proclaimed, it will grow and grow as more and more people respond to the message. So that's so we have to be careful when we use our metaphors, not, not limit them to only one way that they can be used. Uh, scripture's pretty broad about that. Well, we have more Moody students here to ask more questions on the special weekend edition of, or Thanksgiving weekend edition of Open Line. So stay right there. My name is Michael Rydelnik. I'm coming right back with more Moody student questions right here on Open Line. Genuine godly maturity is the goal of the spiritual life, although (laughs) that's easier said than achieved. We tend to go from one extreme to another with the hope of experiencing maturity. That's why I want to send you a practical and biblical book, Balancing the Christian Life by Charles Ryrie. You can request this classic today when you give a gift of any size to OpenLine. Call 888-644-7122 or go to openlineradio.org. Welcome back to the special Thanksgiving weekend edition of Open Line. I'm Michael Rydelnik, and I'm so glad you're joining me today. And I'm joined today by several Moody Bible Institute students, my favorite students in the world. And I'm so glad that they're here asking the questions. So don't call in today. It's pre-recorded, and we are taking the student questions today. Normally at this time, we'd be starting the the to Trisha would be in here, and we'd be doing the FEBC mailbag, but. Uh, no mailbag today because we've got Moody students present. But nevertheless, I do want you to know about FEBC, and you can get a deeper perspective on how the gospel is advancing in the world's most unreached countries through the weekly podcast called Until All Have Heard from the Far East Broadcasting Company. All the details for this podcast and much, much more about FEBC's extensive outreach can be found at febc.org. That's febc.org. And check that out. I think you're going to really be encouraged as you read about that. Well, we have more students in here, and so we're going to go right next. And, of course, you need to introduce yourself and go on. My name is Joy. I'm from Palm Beach County, Florida, and I am studying biblical studies here at Moody. You're from Florida? Yes. I did not know that. You didn't know that? No. Okay. Maybe uh, that's a good thing. Yeah. Well, that's great. I'm glad. You're, you're, wait till the winter comes. Uh, I'll be wishing I was yeah, there. Yeah, yeah. That's right. Oh, good. Well, how can I, how can, what question do you have? Yeah. I actually have two questions, but the mm-hmm. main one is um, in 1 Timothy 2, 12 through 14, Paul says that he doesn't permit women to teach or exercise authority over men. Um, and he cites the order of creation and Eve's deception as Mm -hmm. his reasons why. 
So why does the order of creation matter and who gets to teach or who doesn't? Why does the order of creation matter? You know, that's not the only place where he cites that uh, in the role of men and women. Mm -hmm. Uh, I'll read the verse for people listening. Those of you playing at home, here's what Joy is talking about. Uh, A woman should learn. This verse says in silence, but I would translate it quietly because it doesn't mean a woman should keep her mouth absolutely closed. It means quietly. Uh, just like we're supposed to work quietly. Uh, it says that in 2 Thessalonians chapter 3, verse 12, same word about working not in silence, but we have to work with our own hands quietly. Okay, So a woman should learn quietly with full submission. I don't allow a woman to teach or have authority over a man. Instead, she's to be quiet, for Adam was created first, then Eve. That's your question, mm-hmm. the order of creation. What? Huh? And then, for Adam was created first, then Eve, and then, and Adam was not deceived, but the woman was deceived and transgressed. So there's two reasons that he gives, one about the order of creation, and two about the deception of the woman, just as you said. So that's the passage. Now, the very first thing is many people want to say that this is only cultural from the first century, because in Ephesus, there was a great emphasis on women leadership because of the the Temple of Artemis there in Ephesus, Temple of Diana. And and so because of that, there was a problem. Women were shouting out and being disruptive. And so because of that, uh, Paul gave what he would call a uh, a limited uh, injunction, you know, a temporary injunction, you could Mm -hmm. say, uh, against women being teachers and leaders. It's really talking about being an elder uh, when you talk about verse 12 where it says, uh, verse 11 where it says a woman, uh, I'm sorry, I'll give it to you, right? I do not allow a woman, verse 12, to teach or have authority. That's talking about the elder role. Yeah. Um, And so I don't think it's cultural because if it was cultural, he would have said, because of the cultural situation, I want to limit the authority of women. So that's the, the first thing I would say. The second thing is when people get upset when... So the reason I say it's not cultural, he doesn't cite the culture, but he cites creation in the fall. So those things tend to be teaching something that's transcultural, not, not limited to the culture. The second issue is that um, very often uh, people think that this is the only place, but in 1 Corinthians 11... Uh, it talks about, again, leadership in the local congregation. And in 1 Corinthians 11, uh, it says, verse 2, I want you to know that Christ, or Messiah, is the head of every man, and the man is the head of the woman, and God is the head of Christ. Uh, and then, uh, so you've got this authority, and it goes on to talk about uh that in verse 8, a man did not come from woman, but woman came from man. So there you have the order of creation once again. Now, what I think is interesting is this gives me a little bit of an insight that so often people want to say this authority structure, as Paul lays it out in the church, somehow means that women are inferior. But if Christ is the head of every man, that means he's the authority 
over every man. The man is the authority of the woman, not all men, but the leaders in the local congregation. And then it says, and God is the authority of Christ. Now, God the Father and God the Son are fully equal in essence. And yet there's a relational, a functional relationship that they have where the Son submits to the Father. You see that in John 6, where Jesus said, I came not to do my will, but the will of him who sent me. So he submisses, submissive, submissive to the Father, even though they're ontologically equal. They're, in terms of nature, of their essence of, of their being, they're fully equal. I think that's important because just as the Father and the Son are equal ontologically or according to their essence, that's the big word for it, but have functional differences, in the same way men and women are ontologically or are essentially equal before God. Men are supposed to treat women as fellow heirs of the grace of life, according to 1 Peter 3, uh, fellow heirs, equal heirs of the grace of life. Uh, so it is really, really important that we recognize that men and women are completely equal spiritually, in essence, that men are not superior. In fact, uh, I would make the claim that maybe just the opposite is true. I don't know. But no, really, we're equal. So that's, uh, that's what I would say. So now, why the order of creation? Why does he point to that as teaching something? Well, if you go back to the creation in uh, Genesis chapter 2, God gives Adam, the man, dominion. And how does he, he says, but there's no one in chapter 2, uh, says uh, that God placed the man in the middle of the garden, right? Uh, to, and then that's in verse 15, the Lord God commanded the man, you're free to eat from any tree, right? And then it says in verse 18, it's not good for the man to be alone. I will make a helper as his complement, right? And then the Lord God brings all the animals uh, every wild animal, every bird of the sky, and brought each to the man to see what he would call it. And the man gave names to the livestock, to the birds of the sky, and to every wild animal. But for the man, no helper. That doesn't mean inferior, but like a partner. That's the idea of helper, one who comes to our aid in our most necessary way, in our greatest need, uh, was found as his complement. And so then he makes the woman. But now he was going to do that all along, but he brings the animals and has the man name them. The first reason that to name the animals means that I've made you the authority. So the expression of authority is by naming. And then secondly, uh, he shows his need. There's no one to compliment him among the animals. And so what happens is the, the Lord God makes the woman, and what does the man do? This one, at last, he cries out. It's like, yay, wow, he's so excited. Bone of my bone, flesh of my flesh. And then what's he do? He names her. This woman shall be called, this one shall be called woman, for she was taken from man. He gives her their name. Why is that significant? It establishes uh, his authority. That man was, now the human, the couple was given dominion over the earth. But right there, by naming the woman, uh, it shows that man was given headship or uh, the, the leadership in that. So I think that's why Paul, when he says it was not the man 
uh, it was not the woman who was created, but the man who was created first, he's going back to that uh, leadership role. Then in terms of the fall, I don't think it means that women are more gullible. My wife is much more, much smarter, much more careful than I am. Uh, I think what happens in in Genesis 3, it says uh, that uh, the, the woman, uh, it sounds to me like the woman is taking over the role. The man should have been the spiritual head here, and he doesn't act that way. She convinces him to eat of the fruit that he shouldn't, and he does it because he'll do anything for her. Uh, and then as a result of that, there that's going to be the battle of the ages. In verse 16, uh, your desire, that means desire to rule. You see that in Genesis 4, sin's desire is for you, Cain. And so the word desire in Genesis 3.16 is desire to rule will be for your husband, but he will rule over you. That's the battle of the sexes. That's the curse uh, that comes out. But what happens when Paul says that, look at the disastrous consequences when the order of creation was disrupted. That's what led to the fall. So those are the two reasons that Paul gives. He says, this is how God created. The man was supposed to lead. And then secondly, uh, look at the disastrous consequences for the man not leading, but the woman leading. And that's why he gives those two reasons that men will be a leader. I know you have a follow-up, but we're going to take a break, and we'll come back to that in a moment, okay? Uh, You're listening to Open Line with Michael Rydelnik. And Joy and Eric, who are still here, going to be asking their questions. These are Moody Bible Institute students. I love hearing Moody student questions. They're terrific. Uh, We're going to be right back with those questions. You keep listening on the special Thanksgiving Day edition of Open Line with Michael Rydelnik. Stay right there. We're coming right back. Thanks for staying with us on this special Thanksgiving edition of Open Line. Uh, I'm so grateful to be with you this Thanksgiving weekend and a bunch of Moody students here asking their questions. And before we get back to Joy's questions, uh, one frequent question I get on this program is, how should we think about the Jewish people? What does it mean that God chose the Jewish people? Well, one of our underwriters, Chosen People Ministries, This is an organization that brings the good news to Jewish people all around the world, wants to help answer those kinds of questions, and they're offering a free book. It's called Israel, the Jewish People, and Jesus. This book explains God's promises to the Jewish people and what they mean today. If you'd like a copy of Israel, the Jewish People, and Jesus, just go to our website. That's openlineradio.org. Scroll down. You'll see on the right side near the bottom, it says a free gift from Chosen People Ministries. Click on that. It'll take you to a page where you can sign up for your own copy of Israel, the Jewish people, and Jesus. Okay, and we were talking with Joy about 1 Timothy 2.12, one of the really challenging passages in our culture because it talks about male leadership, and we were talking about uh, the, how do I put it, the the male leadership in the local congregation that men are to be the elders. Uh, I want to say... Uh, Joy, thank you for asking that question. That's uh, it's it's a tough question. People don't like it, and I appreciate that you asked it. So, but you have some follow ups about what we talked about. Yeah, um, you basically already answered this one, but it's like, is it fair to apply that command to Timothy to our modern churches? And I guess I can modify it more and be like, if a woman is preaching and is like, "This is my calling," 
and is acting in the spirit, what do we do? Mm-hmm. You know? Well, I'll just tell you, when I first, when I was a pastor and I preached through First uh, Timothy, uh, the name... <laughs> The name of the series was How to Do Church, and that was uh, that we came to this passage, and I, I, I had a young woman, she was a Moody student, and she was an actress, and I had her prepared, and when I came to this passage and started to teach, she stood up and said, you are just like the most misogynist person there is. I hate this. I'm not listening to this. I'm leaving. And she stormed out. And the whole congregation was staring and kind of start, you could feel people starting to sweat. But the the reason I did that, I thought, I want to raise the issue uh, that people were feeling and address it. And then, of course, I told everyone that that was prepared, that she did this on, on my command, uh, not my command, but my request, I should say. Uh, and she agreed to do it. And then she came back in and everything was okay. But I said, let's address this. I don't believe Paul was misogynistic. When you see what Paul has to say in Galatians 3.28 about when it comes to justification by faith, there's neither Jew or Gentile, Jew or Greek, male or female, we're the same spiritually. We're both lost, men and women. Uh, we, we're redeemed the same way through Jesus the Messiah. Uh, we're indwelt the same way. Everything is the same spiritually between men and women. So this is a functional difference. And also the other thing I did when I taught through this, which was really important, and I've heard a lot of people speak through this book and get to this passage and not do this. And I always want to say, oh, man, you got to do this. There's so much in Scripture that the Bible says women can do. And so we always want to focus on what the limitations are instead of the opportunities. And here's some of the opportunities. We talked earlier today about Lois and Eunice teaching the Scriptures to Timothy. Uh, women can teach children. It says in Titus 2 that the older women are to teach the younger women. Women can teach other women uh, about faithfulness to God in the scriptures. Uh, what else can women do? It says in 1 Timothy 3 that women can be deaconesses. Those were the women uh, and men, the deacons and deaconesses, who sort of facilitate what makes congregations happen. In 1 Timothy 5, widows had special ministry roles uh, they were supported by the congregation to fulfill special ministry roles. And why is that important? I found when I was a pastor that 80% of the pastoral care in a local congregation was done by women. And I found that women, just because they were, I, I find women to be more compassionate, more, more sensitive, they were willing to do that. There's so much women can do in terms of ministry. And so we should not, in any way, shape, or form, take that limitation and make it, that's it, women do nothing, barefoot and pregnant at home, you know? Uh, this is, this is uh, what, what women, women can do much, much more, even in Paul's writings, and so uh, even in this book. So I, I want to be really clear about that. Uh, so... How do, I think your question was, how do we apply it today? Is that or yeah, like, or, is it fair to apply it, or like, if we see, a oh, what woman do you do when you see as a, a pastor? Yeah. Well, first of all, I when I see women preaching, there's a couple things I say. First of all, 
uh, I'm not in charge of everyone, and and the, they don't ever have to answer to me. You know, uh, I've, I, the Lord has been really good to me. He's released me from my role as associate justice of the of the world. You know, I'm Amen. no longer the Supreme Court of God. He's released me from that. God, they have to answer to God, not to me. And so I don't I don't judge. Uh, secondly, there are people who differ with me and take this uh, approach of what I would call an egalitarian, where women can be elders and pastors. And if that's their conviction that the scriptures teach that, I differ. But I'm I I I'm not going to think that they are some. It's a non-essential issue. Yeah. There are essential issues. They are not outside the faith. They are not bad people, and I am not going to uh, condemn that. Uh, it's not my role. Uh, the other thing too, I look at scripture. In, in Judges 4, and Bar- Barak was called by Deborah to go and and defeat the Midianites, I believe. No, not the Midianites, the Canaanites, I think it's in Judges 4. But uh, he says, no, Deborah, I'm scared. Come with me. And she says, then a woman will get the glory out of this. And then Jael is the one uh, that has the great victory and puts the spike through the guy's head and all that, right? You know the passage. Oh, yeah. And, and so what that tells me is that God, when men refuse to stand up and do what God wants them to do, he will also raise up a woman to accomplish his purposes. And it may not be what we normally think is the ordinary procedure, but God raises up women. In fact, when we think about the guardians of the Great Commission, uh, the, that book by Ruth Tucker, all the, when men wouldn't go to the mission field and bring the gospel, uh, women did. And they are the guardians of the Great Commission. They are the ones, I think, of the, a woman led me to faith and taught me the Bible as a new follower of Jesus. Many women served in Jewish ministry when men weren't willing. And so I bless God for what women have done in stepping up and and taking this role. So I can't believe our time is up. First hour of Open Line is over on this special Thanksgiving weekend edition. Thank you, Joy, for that great question. Keep listening. There's a second hour of Moody students asking questions today, so don't go away. During the break, check out our webpage, openlineradio.org. That page has all the links to past programs, and uh, you can see our current Bible study resource there and how to become a kitchen table partner second hour of Open Line is coming up straight ahead with more of your questions uh, asked by Moody students, so don't go away. Open Line with Michael Rydelnik is a production of Moody Radio, a ministry of Moody Bible Institute. <laughs>